Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Welcome to everybody. Episode 44. Sports Podcast. It is Wednesday, October 13th, 2021, people. Hope everybody is having a great week. Hope everybody is ready for a loaded episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I will start in a place that I don't normally start. That is the NFL with the biggest story, not only in football, but in all of sports and maybe society as a whole. John Gruden. Yes, I am going to talk a little Gruden. Don't worry. I'm not going to come out. I'm not going to defend him. I'm not going to talk. Uh, What I am going to talk about, though. If you peel back the layers of this story, we all know emails were sent that were highly inappropriate. Uh, You peel back the layers of this story. I think there is something much more interesting going on that a lot of the media either doesn't want to talk about, doesn't see, doesn't care about. This is a fascinating story. I want to get into that. From there, we'll obviously go to the college game. I do want to start talking Georgia-Kentucky, by far the biggest game this weekend. No reason that we have to wait until Friday, so I'll share a couple thoughts on that. Also, do a little fun segment, LSU versus USC. Both of those jobs, one is open, one is expected to be open. A big talking point in college football right now. Which job is better as both jobs, when they open, may pursue similar candidates? I think it'll be a fun segment you'll enjoy. We'll wrap with where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. America's favorite segment. You guys tweet about me. You tweet to me about it all the time, which basically says to me, you guys love when I have to come on this show every Wednesday and make fun of myself for being an idiot. So we will wrap with where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. With that said, let's get to the topic of the day. And as I said to lead the show, the John Gruden stuff is not only the biggest topic in all of sports, I would say it is the biggest topic in all of society. And so as a quick refresher, what I just said, I promise, this is not me coming in hot, yelling and screaming, uh, but I do think there are some interesting elements to this story that everybody in the media is glossing over. Everyone is so focused on the contents of the emails, you got to dig deeper because there is some fascinating conversations to be had about how the emails got out and why they got out at this particular time. 
In terms of the specifics, I'm not going to spend too much time on them. If you listen to this podcast, if you care about sports, you know what happened. But essentially, John Gruden, uh, a wave of emails, some dating back as far as 10 years have come out, and they do not paint him in a very good picture. Uh, They paint him in a homophobic, uh, racist picture, to be perfectly honest. And so here is the quick backstory. Friday, first wave of emails comes out, Wall Street Journal a 2011 email from John Grunin in which he talks about the current NFL PA, NFL Players Association head, DeMoris Smith, as having big lips. He calls them Michelin uh, tire size lips, which is obviously uh, could be construed as a racial connotation. John Gruden immediately comes out and says there was no racial connotation involved. What I was saying was that he has quote unquote rubber lips. Anybody that I believe to be a liar, I call rubber lipped. That was John Gruden's excuse. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. I will say Tim Brown, other former players, came out in John Gruden's defense and said that he had used that term around them before. This did not surprise them, okay? Beyond that, what I would say is this. He survives the weekend. He survives to coach. The Raiders lose. They look flat. It is clearly not a good situation. And then on Monday night, the bombshell of all bombshells drop as more emails leak. These with John Gruden basically offending everybody under the sun, offending, you know, saying offensive things about women, saying offensive things about homosexuals, saying offensive things about, uh, frankly, Roger Goodell, saying offensive things about whatever. There was apparently, uh, you know, scantily clad pictures of women. And so when these emails come out, uh, it's clear that John Gruden is not going to keep his job. He announces his resignation, uh, but Mark Davis appeared, the owner of the Raiders appeared ready to fire him. And so what I want to do now is talk about the story behind the story. And I told you this on Monday's episode, and I tell you this all the time. If I don't think that I have an interesting angle on a topic, I pretty much am not going to talk about it, okay? And so what I do promise you is two things. One, I'm not going to come out with the super hot take of, uh, you know, defending John Gruden and he did nothing wrong and cancel call. No. You put this in an email, you're going to, I don't even want to say unfortunately, you are going to lose your job. At the same time, I don't want to do the boring stance of, well, he had to be fired. Yeah, he did have to be fired. We all understand that. But to me, what is much more interesting and what could be a very interesting story to follow over the coming weeks, the coming months, and potentially the coming years, how did these emails get out and why did they get out at, that, at this specific time? Because if you follow the breadcrumbs there, I am telling you this could be a mega story to watch going forward. First of all, in terms of the Friday emails, again, making derogatory comments about Demora Smith that are over 10 years old at this point. Um, here is why it is interesting that it came out on Friday, okay? Friday was the day. Demora Smith, again, is the head of the NFL Players Association. Friday, he was up for re-election, okay? I'm not insinuating anything. I'm not saying Demora Smith did it. I'm not saying his camp did it. But what I will tell you is if you are looking for sympathy heading into re-election, heading into a time where your future as the head of the NFLPA is potentially in jeopardy, 
What better way to get public support behind you than have some emails come out and say uh, all these awful things about you? Say, oh, I'm a victim. I'm this. I'm that. I'm not saying that's what happened. I am just saying it is very interesting that those emails were sitting in a folder somewhere for 10 years about Demora Smith, and they happened to get out the day that he is up for re-election. Now, he was re-elected Friday, so the possibility exists that the vote had already been done before the emails get out. But again, no better way to make yourself a sympathetic figure if you're up for re-election. And oh, by the way, if you don't win the seat, if you are not voted in by the players and you lose, what better way to get a little sympathy on the way out the door? Well, of course I lost. Look at how people are talking about me behind the scenes. How could I? It was unfair. I'm just saying that is interesting. What is more interesting, though, is the emails that came out on Monday surrounding John Gruden. And again, you can go read the specifics, but he offends everybody under the sun. He offends homosexuals. He offends what he says all sorts of inappropriate things. And for the thousandth time, I am not going to defend him. But what I am going to ask you is, again, to look at the story behind the story, to look at the details and to ask some hard but interesting questions. And this is why I think you come to the Aaron Torres podcast. This is why you choose me out of all of these other options because I turn on TV. All I hear is people yelling and screaming, he needs to be fired, he needs to be this, he needs to be that. A lot of people aren't asking the tough questions behind this. We all understand he has to be fired. But let's again look at how these emails came out and why now. So in terms of the how the emails came out, okay, this is how the Gruden emails got leaked. The NFL is currently in the middle of investigating the former Washington Redskins, currently Washington football team, uh, basically over a toxic work culture, work environment surrounding the organization. This has been a prolonged investigation. It wrapped in July. And in the process of doing the investigation, the NFL looked over 650,000 emails. 650,000 emails surrounding the Washington Football Club over a span of 10 plus years. The only ones that, by the way, the, the investigation was wrapped in July. The only ones that come out are five months after the investigation wraps, four months, whatever it is. And the only ones that come out are from John Gruden, who never worked for the organization, who has nothing to do with the organization, who had nothing to do with the culture in the organization. And oh, by the way, the NFL said on Tuesday that they do not plan on releasing the rest of the emails. By the way, credit to a couple NFL, uh, a couple NFL reporters because there's, you know, I saw Mike Florio, Pro Football Talk, say, we got to get to the bottom of those emails, but let me ask you a simple question. Why is there an investigation into the, into the Washington football team? The only emails that get leaked are from John Gruden, who, again, had nothing to do with the organization. None of the other ones are being shared. And the NFL doesn't plan on sharing the rest. It makes no sense. Well, it makes sense unless they are trying to find a fall guy to cover up a lot of other stuff that has to do with the investigation. Because think about it. First of all, John Gruden, 650,000 emails. The John Gruden emails specifically were to a guy named Bruce Allen. Bruce Allen is the son of George Allen, who was the longtime Washington Redskins owner, coach, whatever, blah, 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 this and that. Very famous football person, 
George Allen, who obviously passed away many, many, many years ago. But, you know, he was a guy that coached in the NFL, uh, that had a big role in, you know, the success of that organization. And basically, this guy, Bruce Allen, is an NFL lifer, is a football lifer, is a guy that has been involved with the NFL since day one. That is who John Gruden was sending these emails to. And I got to be honest, I find it awfully interesting this. John Gruden said all those derogatory things in an email. But we don't know what the context of the emails were. We don't know who else was involved. We don't know what Bruce Allen was saying because it feels weird to me, guys. Call me crazy. It feels weird to me. For John Gruden, whether those what you have to do, separate whether those comments were appropriate or inappropriate and ask yourself this. If John Gruden wasn't getting similar comments from the other side of the conversation, why would he be saying it? Think about the way that you email your friends, the way that you text your friends, the way that you talk to your friends. Would you just start throwing out derogatory terms and offensive terms and homophobic terms if that's not how your buddies talk? I'm not saying it's right or that you should do it or that you do do it. But is that how you talk when the other person's like, uh, don't talk to me like that. That's kind of creepy. You don't keep going. It felt like it was part of a broader conversation that, uh, you know, it feels like it was part of a broader conversation that we're only privy to one side of, which is John Gruden's. Beyond that, 650,000 emails. First off, it feels like Bruce Allen getting off scot-free here, former Washington football club general manager, father was the coach of the Washington football team, um... But we have no idea uh, what the context of was there. But then beyond that, how many other emails do you think are in that treasure trove of 650,000 that the NFL has no plan on releasing? So we dragged John Gruden through the mud, but we're not going to release the rest of them? Well, we can't release them because they're confidential. Well, apparently they're not confidential because they all got out on Tuesday. They all got out on Monday. They all got out over the course of this weekend. If it's confidential... How did they get out? Now that it's not confidential, I think the NFL owes us the fact that they should be sharing these emails. But as of right now, they don't plan on it. And I'm just telling you, what I want to know is this. What else happened in those 650,000 emails? And why is John Gruden the only one that got out? Because you start to think about how 650,000 emails over the course of 10, 10, 11 years, whatever it was, you don't think there's some other pretty powerful people from the NFL? By the way, I should mention, I believe there were two collective bargaining agreements, two negotiations between owners and players during that time. You don't think some other inappropriate things were said? You don't think that potentially, maybe, just maybe, there's some stuff that some of the other owners don't want to get out? I'm not going to name names because I don't know who was involved and who wasn't, but it just feels weird to me. Just feels weird to me that John Gruden, who never worked for the Washington football team during this time frame, that his emails were the ones that got out. Everybody else's were quiet. And oh, by the way, there was obviously emails between owners, between GMs, between front office people. Maybe Roger Goodell's in there. You think maybe they don't want their emails to get out as well? It's just something to think about because the more that I think about this, one of two things happened here. One, somebody clearly had a vendetta against John Gruden, and I'm not uh, excusing it. Uh, but they probably thought the first leaked email would get them fired on Friday. It did not, and so they sent out more emails. I think that's a possibility, but I think it's a much bigger possibility that John Gruden is a fall guy for some very important people in the NFL. Uh, we all know the owners 
run this league. We all know, uh, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. We all know the power of a bunch of billionaires sitting around smoking cigars and drinking. Um, you know, even in the even though John Gruden is a wealthy man, could he be a fall guy? Could he be, you know, could could he be the excuse and the guy that that covers up for all these other guys? It was funny during. Uh, kind of the coverage of this on Monday night during Monday Night Football, I thought of the old Chris Rock joke. Chris Rock once said, there's a difference between rich and wealthy. And the quote was, Shaq is rich. The old guy that signs his check is wealthy. That's kind of what I feel like John Gruden. John Gruden, the rich guy, got sacrificed to protect the wealthy guys. I'm just telling you, keep an eye on this story I don't know if John Gruden will pursue anything from here on out. I think he's just going to kind of quietly disappear into the background. But if he pursues this, or if we ever get a look at what those other emails are, I'm just telling you, just an absolutely fascinating story. All right, this is what I want to do. I want to take a quick break. I want to come back. I want to talk about the week that is coming in college football. Kentucky, George is the big one. Uh, what does Can Kentucky compete? What do they have to do to compete? And then I want to talk a little LSU-USC. Those two jobs appear set to be open. USC is already open. LSU is potentially going to be open as well. So we will get to all of that, and we'll wrap with where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. All right, let's switch gears and talk a little college football because, look, you know, Friday has become kind of the look-ahead, weekend preview type show. But when you have a big game, there's no reason that we have to wait till Friday to talk about it. And while, uh, while there will obviously be all sorts of uh, intriguing matchups this weekend, I mean, Lane Kiffin going back to Tennessee is really interesting. Uh, Alabama, second straight road game is interesting to me at Mississippi State. There is one that is bigger than all the rest, and it is Kentucky at Georgia. And I just want to say, if you had Kentucky and Georgia as the last two undefeated SEC teams in your preseason poll, give yourself a pat on the back and go play Powerball because you are a freaking genius as we get a top 15 matchup between these two teams. It should be a top 10 matchup. I don't know how a team could be 6-0 and 4-0 in SEC play and not be ranked in the top 10, but a top 15 matchup, and I think we're going to learn a lot about both of these teams. It is a 23-and-a-half point spread, so if Kentucky can keep it close, we're gonna. it's just going to be further proof of just how incredible this program has, has uh, become. If they win, it's obviously going to be a stunner, and we're going to have to start talking about Kentucky and the college football playoff and if Georgia wins and covers then I think it might be proof that everybody's playing for second place this season how about my dogs but a lot of game a lot of football left to be played so let's not get too far ahead of ourselves and let's talk about this game because listen you know Kentucky is I think unquestionably one of the two three four best stories in college football right now like there are a lot of good teams this year um, but I don't know that there's a better story than Kentucky, right? Like, we knew Cincinnati coming in was going to be good. I don't think anybody thought they were going to be ranked in the top three this time of the year, but it doesn't mean that it's a better story than the team coming completely off the radar in the SEC in Kentucky. Uh, Mark Stoops obviously had a, a an incredible 10-win season two years ago. He's headed, I think, for at least a 10-win season 
this season, maybe 11 wins. And again, if they win this game, they're going to, you know, they're, they're going to the college football playoff. But let's, again, not to get too far ahead of ourselves. And what I think this game really comes down to, I think it's going to be fascinating to see if Kentucky is willing to open it up. Because it's, it, what's interesting to me is I spent all offseason reading all of these articles about how Kentucky is really going to open things up and go crazy through the air. This freshman or this transfer quarterback, Will Levis, this new offensive coordinator, Liam Cohen. Uh, and what have I seen? I see a team still that primarily runs the football. And I do think that this is one of those games where for Kentucky to win, they're going to have to get creative, they're going to have to get unique, and they're going to have to get out of their comfort zone and throw the ball all over the field. It's really interesting. As I was prepping for this podcast, I talked about it a little bit on the college football betting show on Monday. This game, in a weird way, reminds me of Michigan and Wisconsin a few weeks ago. Uh, if you remember, I talked about it on this show. I said, look, you know, I'm a Harbaugh defender. But Michigan does not want to throw the football. Harbaugh has shown no interest in throw, throwing the football up until that point. And if he thinks he's just going to run the ball right at the line of scrimmage against Wisconsin, he's got another thing coming to him, and he is going to lose that game. To his credit, Michigan opened things up. They took care of Wisconsin and Nebraska the last two weeks. And it's kind of the same with Kentucky here. They have done an unbelievable job running the football. Last week was probably their best weekend in doing so. 330 yards rushing against LSU. You ain't getting 330 yards and seven yards per carry on the ground against Georgia. And so what becomes fascinating to me is how much is Mark Stoops and Liam Cohen willing to open things up? Again, I read all sorts of articles all offseason long about how Kentucky is this new age offense and Liam Cohen's coming from the NFL. He worked for Sean McVay, all that good stuff. And I'm not discrediting what he's done. But here is what Will Levis, the quarterback, has done in SEC play in terms of pass attempts. 17 pass attempts against LSU, 17 pass attempts against Florida, 22 against South Carolina, 18 against Missouri a few weeks ago. And so again, it's pretty simple. Um, I don't blame Kentucky for taking that approach to playing those teams. It worked. They beat all four of those teams convincingly. But you look at the actual pass attempts over the course of the year, they're 115th nationally in pass attempts. That is not what I was sold. It has gotten them to this point, but they're going to have to open it up. And I'll just be curious. I think we'll know within a series or two if they're really willing to do that. Be especially interesting because Josh Ali, as I record here, their second leading receiver, appears like he may be out with injury. He missed the LSU game. I also do think this is an interesting game from Georgia's perspective as well. And like I said, you know I love my dogs. But what I would also say you know, I do think we're getting a little ahead of ourselves as labeling them a great, iconic, all-time team. And, and, you know, one thing I'll say really quick is this. I blame myself for one thing. Two weeks ago, I tried to sell you, because everybody else in the media was, that it was Alabama, Georgia, and everybody else. In my heart of hearts, I did not believe that about Alabama. I believed they were flawed, but I convinced myself, because they took care of Ole Miss. They're incredible. Well, what, can't, what happened last week? Alabama loses. Now the narrative is Georgia is significantly better than everybody else. And they may be. They certainly have the best defense. They're certainly the most physical. They probably have the best run game in college football. But there is one thing that they haven't proven they can do. And until they prove it, I cannot believe that this is a great team that is unbeatable and invincible. Can they throw the football? I don't know if they're going to have to this week. 
But at some time, at some point, they are going to have to prove it. And until they do, I do not know if they are really elite. It's worth mentioning coming into this game, Georgia is a little bit beat up. You know, Kirby Smart talked about it in his press availability on Monday. He said, look, that Auburn team is really physical. Auburn is one of the best run defenses in college football. Auburn recruits at an elite level, not quite the Georgia, Alabama, LSU, Texas A&M level, but just a shade below it. They got some ball players on that team, and Kirby Smart came out and said, look, we're a little banged up too. And so is this the game where Kentucky is, the, is physical enough this would, of course, be a third straight physical opponent for Georgia dating back to the Arkansas game two weeks ago and then this past week against Auburn and now Kentucky. Third straight really physical team. I would mention fifth straight SEC game already this season. And how healthy, I don't want to say how healthy is Georgia coming into this game, but they have a bye next week. And are they going to, again, kind of what I just said with Kentucky, try to survive, get through it by pounding the football, uh, physical run game. And if Kentucky can stop them a few times and make them go through the air, can they do that? We're going to find out. And by the way, if coming off, a, if now in a fifth straight SEC game against a third straight physical opponent, they do exactly what I just said, which is mash the football right at Kentucky uh, and run all over them and play incredible defense and hold them to 5.5 points per game, which is what they're doing to everybody else this season. Then it might be really, if they cover this spread, then it might be time to say, okay, I don't know if it matters. Um, I don't know if it matters if they can throw the football or not. They might be so good defensively and so good against the run that it might not matter. Um, but I'm just not ready to go there yet. And so I'm telling you, you talk about a fascinating showdown. Georgia-Kentucky on Saturday, 3.30 CBS. We will obviously have much, much, much more on this game in the lead-up on Friday. But as I said, it felt like there's no reason we have to wait until Friday's show to talk about it. All right, let's, la let's wrap on one last college football topic. And I think it's an interesting one. I think it's going to be a fun conversation uh, and that's what I like to do. I like to make you think. I like to make you think about things in different ways. And the conversation is one that has come up a lot in college football circles over the last couple weeks. And it is, which job is actually better, USC or LSU? And the reason this topic has come up, some of you probably driving around at the gym, wherever you listen to this podcast, you're probably sitting there saying, Torres, why are you talking about this? This makes no sense. What does one have to do with the other? Well, it's pretty straightforward. USC is a job that is already open. Don't know what Clay Helton's doing right now, but he's getting paid a lot of money to do nothing. And LSU is going to open up. I, I don't wish ill will on Coach O. I don't root for another man to, to, to lose his job. But when you get punked by Kentucky and UCLA and you're LSU, that is simply unacceptable. Both of these jobs at some point will be open. And many, and, and many of the same candidates may be candidates at both jobs and so somebody like James Franklin may ultimately have to choose. Do I want USC? Do I want LSU? I don't know if Luke Fickle was the perfect fit at either one, but he might have the choice at some point. Do I want either one of these jobs? And so let's get into it. Let's talk about which one is better because I think it's a fascinating conversation, and I think it's one that's going to pick up steam here in college football circles over these next few weeks. And what do we do on the Aaron Torres podcast? We get ahead of conversations. We talk about the story before everybody else does. That's what I think makes this show really unique. And so in terms of the good, let's start there because both jobs are fantastic. And there's a reason that both of these are very highly coveted jobs, both jobs where you can win national championships year in and year out and compete at the highest levels of football. 
In terms of LSU, by the way, many of the similarities you'll learn very quickly are the same. LSU, I think it's pretty straightforward. Um, the recruiting base in Louisiana is absolutely insane. Just before the show, I decided to look it up for fun. Just in this recruiting class alone, small state Louisiana, not a huge population. Three five-stars, seven top 100 players, 14 four-star or five-star players in that state alone. So as we know, you just clean up in Louisiana, you're going to have success. And just think about some of the players that have come through Louisiana in recent years, most of them, by the way, at LSU. Odell Beckham, Leonard Fournette, Jarvis Landry, Tyron Matthew. In recent years, uh, Jamar Chase, who is, of course, balling out for the Cincinnati Bengals. Devontae Smith, last year's Heisman Trophy winner. Travis Etienne, first-round pick who played at Clemson. And in Landon Collins, by the way, Alabama. An insane amount of talent. And the thing that separates LSU from just about every other school in the SEC, there's no other Power 5 schools in the state. It's what makes LSU unique. It's what, by the way, makes Ohio State unique in the Big Ten as well. LSU doesn't have an Auburn to its Alabama to recruit with. Uh, LSU does not have a Michigan to its Michigan State, Mississippi to its Mississippi State, Florida to Florida State, Miami, Central Florida, whoever. LSU is the only game in town, and because of it, they, one, have the financial backing of the entire state, which we'll get into in a minute, and two, basically every kid in Louisiana grows up playing football, and they love the LSU Tigers. And so you don't even have to get it rolling to get most of the best players in the state committed. That's one thing, by the way, with Coach O, even while he's on the hot seat, still has a top 10 recruiting class uh, ready for next season. That's obviously pending, depending on what uh, they do with that coaching search. But an insane amount of talent, nobody to compete with. And listen, we all know what the other big draw of that job is. It's an SEC school with major SEC resources, as I said, in a state with no other school competing with it. I'm not saying that there's a limit to what Alabama will do for its football team or Auburn or Georgia or Florida. That's not what I'm saying at all. But when you think about the financial backing of an entire state, that means something. I mean, just look at the recent coaching hires. Dave Aranda was the highest paid coordinator in all of college football. No expense was spared to put the best staff together for Coach O. By the way, how did all this disaster start? hiring Bo Pelini, giving him a three-year contract that paid him over $2 million a year guaranteed, which meant that just for an assistant coach, they're paying a $4 million buyout right now. They had an assistant coach making more than some head coaches in college football. That guy is on a buyout. LSU paid it because they said he ain't going to get the job done. Let's go get somebody else. On top of that, we all know. 100,000-seat stadium, elite facilities, uh, $28 million locker room renovation, so no expense is spared at LSU, and that's what makes it elite. And by the way, you know how you know it's a good job? And this is a stat that has come up a lot over the last couple weeks. The last three head coaches there have won national championships. It, it reminds me a lot, when I was growing up, there was kind of this belief that anybody could coach Miami and anybody could win big there. At one point, well, not at one point, Miami has won five national championships in its school history. What a lot of people don't realize, it's been with four different head coaches. Howard Schnellenberger, uh, Jimmy Johnson, Dennis Erickson, Butch Davis. And there was like a 20-year stretch where it was like, it doesn't matter who Miami's coaching. There's so much talent that program coaches itself. Uh, Larry Coker, or excuse me, Butch Davis didn't win the national championship. Larry Coker did. So that's a perfect example right there. Larry Coker won a freaking national championship at Miami, and the LSU is kind of the modern version of that. 
if Les Miles can win a national championship at LSU and be in position to win a couple others, played for at least one, played for one more national championship, was in competition for many more, if Coach O can win a national championship, then it feels like just about anybody could. And imagine if you got a truly elite coach there, what they would be capable of doing. Now let's get to USC because USC is kind of the same deal. There are a lot of benefits to USC, and what I would say is a lot of them are very similar to LSU. First of all, the recruiting is absolutely insane. As good as Louisiana is, California, bigger population, bigger state, all of that. This year, 26 four- or five-star players, seven top 100 players, a couple five-stars. Why do I bring it up? It is because think about when USC had it rolling, how many NFL guys came through that program and how many of them were from Southern California. You know the names. Reggie Bush, Matt Leiner, Lendale White, uh, Mark Sanchez, Leonard Williams, Robert Woods, Marquise Lee, Matt Barkley. You go on and on down the list. Not only are they all uh, elite players that are now in the NFL, they all came from Southern California. And I can tell you, as somebody who lives here, um, I'll just tell you, even in the down years, even in the down years, USC still cleaned up. That was the most amazing thing when I first moved out here. It was, uh, you know, when Lane Kiffin was, was going in the wrong direction, when Steve Sarkeesian came in, when Cle they never stopped recruiting at an elite level until about two years ago when basically everybody knew Clay Helton was on the hot seat. Kids grow up in L.A. wanting to go to USC, and what I would add is an extra benefit that I don't think people talk about. L listen to some of those names I just mentioned. Matt Leiner, Matt Barkley, Mark Sanchez. All NFL quarterbacks, all from Southern California. What is going on in college football right now? Look at the best quarterbacks in college football right now and look at where they're from. Bryce Young, where is he from? Oh, he's from Southern California. Matt Corral, Ventura, California. Not quite Southern Cal, but it's pretty Southern Cal. Uh, DJ, Al, uh, Clemson, Southern Cal. JT Daniels is from Southern California at Georgia. CJ Stroud is from Southern California now at Ohio State. And so we could have a situation where we have an entire playoff, or maybe not an entire playoff, but just about an entire playoff with quarterbacks from California. And if you can keep just one of those guys home, if you're USC, you got an NFL quarterback right there, and obviously you got to develop them. And so to me, that's what makes USC so appealing is, again, what did I just tell you? Think about all of the coaches that they've had, all of the turmoil that they've had, and they've still won a lot. Like, I think we, we look back on the Clay Helton, Steve Sarkeesian, Lane Kiffin eras as such a mess. Lane Kiffin was not at USC for very long, okay? He was there for three full seasons and fired in his fourth season. In his second year at USC, Lane Kiffin won the division and was not eligible for the postseason, but went 10-2 in, in his second season there. Second year, Lane Kiffin, we all deem as a failure at USC, went 10-2 and, and won the division. Steve Sarkeesian was only there for one year, 9-4. and four. Oh, by the way, Clay Helton, for the failure that he was, two 10-win seasons. Now, it's not quite LSU where all three coaches have won national championships, but what I will tell you, what I will tell you is that a lot of guys win a lot of games, and again, you don't have to be uh, Vince Lombardi or whomever to win big at USC. What I would finally say about USC I know it's going to piss off some people listening. I'm not comparing it to an SEC fan base. What I will say, 
The program, first of all, financially is supported insanely well. Remember, Clay Helton got a $20 million contract extension or whatever it was off of, that, off of those couple solid seasons where he made the Rose Bowl one year and then won the Pac-12 the next year. On top of that, though, it is, it is a big deal, and it does matter to people in Southern California. Now, it has not been as good the last few years, but I am telling you, the, the, the passion, the excitement for USC football, when they are good, when they are good, it's right up there with anything in L.A. I'm telling you, I've lived here for a decade. It's right up there with the Dodgers. It's right up there with the Lakers. Now, uh, what I would also say is in terms of the negatives, let's get into some of the negatives. And I think with USC, the big one is the obvious one that I just said. It isn't the SEC. And I know it's cliche. But there is a lot to do in Southern California. And the one thing about Southern California, I've said this, I believe L.A. is a great sports town. Turn on a Dodgers game. Turn on on a Dodgers playoff game. Uh, Lakers, get a full house Christmas Day, New Year's Day, New Year's Eve. It doesn't matter when the Lakers play, full house. But you got to win. You got to win or people don't show up. And we've seen that at the Coliseum the last few weeks where they have 25,000, 30,000 people in a 90,000-seat stadium. L.A., there's too much to do. There's too much traffic. It's too hard to get anywhere to watch a losing football program. Um, And that's kind of, you know, LSU, that's an advantage, right, is you have that SEC fandom. You have that SEC passion. People are showing up no matter what. Now, they might show up to boo your butt, but, you know, 90,000 people might show up to boo your butt, but they're still going to show up. Now, what I would say the negative is with with LSU is exactly what I just said. The gift and the curse of the SEC, and that is where ultimately I think this is all going to come down. Say a James Franklin has the opportunity to take either job. It's going to come down to this. Do you really want to be in the same division as Nick Saban in the same conference as all of these schools that have all of the resources, all of the ability that you do? Georgia, Florida, you know, Tennessee, if they can ever get rolling, has a great recruiting base with North Carolina, Tennessee, Nashville, all that stuff right there. Um, You know, Texas A&M. Texas is coming to the conference. Oklahoma is coming into the conference. You have a lot of schools that you have to compete with. And look, I know that all these guys and and the argument for, listen, I think in a vacuum, the LSU job is probably a better job just because of the financial support, the financial commitment. No, there's no cost that they're not willing to pay. But at the same time, you can't put this thing in a vacuum. And I do think that is going to matter to these candidates. I do think it's worth noting. All of these guys say, I want the toughest competition, the best league, the best coaches, the best, like, I want all that. Everybody says stuff like that, but if you have a chance to go somewhere else and win at an insane level without having to play, you know, 10 top 25 teams over the course of the year or seven top 20, you do it. It's why Urban Meyer left Florida to go to Ohio State. It is. These guys all say that's what they want. But if you can have nine wins built in the schedule, you're not going to complain. And I think that's going to be LSU's biggest problem if they are pursuing the same candidates as USC. I'll give you a quick example, okay? Again, all these guys say that's what they want. Um, But I remember years ago hearing uh, Andy Roddick, the famous tennis player. I remember hearing uh, him speak. And in the conversation, he was talking about, you know, coming up short so many times against Roger Federer, uh, the great tennis player as well. And yes, I'm talking tennis on a college football show. Uh, But with that, I bring it up for this reason. I remember Andy Roddick being asked about this, and he basically said, like, look, um, you know, people were like, oh, well, but yeah, you didn't win many majors. I don't think he won any. But, well, you know, it wouldn't have been the same if he didn't go through Roger, right, if he didn't go through Roger Federer. And he's like, no, I wanted to win Wimbledon. 
I wish Roger Federer got knocked out two rounds before I had to play him, and I could have won the thing. And so I bring it up because that story reminds me of what is going on with the, this potential LSU job right now. All these guys say that they want the competition, but they, they don't. it's not that they don't want the competition, but if there's a path of least resistance, it only makes sense to take it. James Franklin, if he's leaving the Big Ten because he can't get over the hump against Ohio State, why is he going to go to a conference where there's three or four Ohio States in any given year as opposed to USC where there's only USC and when it's rolling, there is nobody that can compete with them. So this is a story worth monitoring here over the next few weeks. I think it's going to be fascinating, but I do think it's a great question. Which job is better, LSU or USC? I am kind of ducking the question and saying this is that I think LSU is the better job, but I think if you have to choose between the two, USC is probably the smarter choice, but it is going to be fascinating to see what happens with these two jobs going forward. So what I want to do is take a quick break, come back, uh, and we will do a little where Aaron was right and where Aaron was wrong. All right, everybody, I am back. Good to be back, good to be back. Final segment of the show, and let's wrap on what is quickly becoming America's favorite segment, where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. And, uh, you know, first of all, every single Saturday when I'm tweeting about college football, when I'm watching, when I'm prepping for my radio show, I get a couple tweets of, oh, I bet this makes where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. So thank you, guys. You clearly love this segment. For people who are new to the show, concept is pretty simple, right? Uh, stole it from Colin Cowherd, so let's make no mistake, I did hijack this segment. Every Monday on Colin's show, he comes on. Colin's a friend of mine. I've been on his show. Uh, he comes on and basically admits, hey, I got these couple things right. And I completely whiffed on these few things. And so I've taken it to the Aaron Torres podcast because I do think it's a fun way for me to uh, pat myself on the back. Everybody knows that nobody loves patting themselves on the back more than I do. But also, sometimes in life, you got to take L's. And so let's take some L's where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. Where Aaron was right. How about those LSU Tigers? Listen, I said coming into the season, it's easy to forget now. There was a lot of buzz of LSU, bad year last year, but if they put it together, dark horse playoff contender. And I said on this show, give me a break. If you remember, I had Cole Kublik on in the preseason, and I even asked Cole because I think Cole is about the sharpest college football mind that I've ever met. And I said, am I missing something with LSU? Because I think they can be really good. But college, I didn't see the college football playoff contender, and the reason why was really simple, right? Last year, they had a historically bad defense. Last year, they had one of the worst defenses in school history in the history of SEC football, and I mentioned it a minute ago. They had to fire Bo Pelini with two years left on a guaranteed contract because his defense was so bad. And so I never understood this idea that they were going to go from historically bad defense to college football playoff in a year where they're playing in the toughest division in college football. Now, I did not predict 3-3 three and three at this point in the year. I didn't think Arkansas was going to be as good as they are, and LSU hasn't even played Arkansas yet. I didn't predict that LSU was going to lose to UCLA or Kentucky. But I said, look, a good year for LSU is 8-4, and four, maybe 9-3. and three. But 11-1 and one in a playoff, 12-0, and oh, come on, like, like, let's be realistic here. I never bought into Mac, Max Johnson as an elite uh, quarterback. I never bought into this defense. I never bought into the idea that it was going to get flipped in an offseason. Oh, by the way, Coach O had to fire his offensive line coach in the middle of July. I just thought it was a preposterous idea uh, that they were a playoff contender. And so, I can't lie, nailed that one. LSU 3-3, three and three, far from a playoff contender. 
where Aaron was wrong. Well, I was right on LSU in the preseason. I was wrong on this. I was watching Saturday night's game, Fox Sports Radio Studios, LSU in Lexington at Kroger Field. And I said, can't lie, kind of feels like a tarmac game for Coach O. And for people who don't get the reference, obviously Lane Kiffin was fired on the tarmac at USC. And I said, this kind of feels like the night you get fired at the airport the second the plane lands. LSU was soft. They were getting punked by a really good Kentucky team. That's not a disrespect to Kentucky. But when you're 3-2, and two, must-win game, you go on the road to Kentucky in those yellow and uh, you know gold and purple and gold uniforms, you got to put up a better effort than that. And I said, I think this is the game where he gets canned. What I didn't realize, though, Scott Woodward, a guy I've talked about a lot, the AD at LSU, he does not have a history of canning guys middle of the season. I actually think it's wrong um, because all you're doing is allowing Coach O to coach himself out of this mess. If you know he's not the right guy, you don't need to wait until December 1st to make this decision. He's clearly not the right guy. The fans don't want him there. I don't know if he even wants to be there at this point, but I really thought come Sunday, I even said on, on Monday's episode of the Aaron Torres podcast, I waited later than usual to start recording because I thought there might be some Coach O news instead. Uh, Coach O survives, so I was wrong. It was not a tarmac game for him. But oh, by the way, you got a uh, you got Florida home this weekend. You're a ten and a half point underdog. Maybe this is the weekend where it all goes down. Where Aaron was right. Remember how I said LSU talked about a lot about LSU on this show. Obviously, last segment, this segment, whatever. UCLA beats them in week one, and all of a sudden it becomes this weird narrative of is UCLA the saving grace of the Pac-12? And I said. Look, I think UCLA, like, they're a much improved football team, and I thought they were going to be good this year. They went 3-4 and four last year. Late in the season, they got hot. They played well, and I thought they would be a solid 8-4, and 7-5, 9-3-type team, which, oh, by the way, for UCLA would have been great. Four straight losing seasons under Chip Kelly. Um, last year, again, if it had been a 12-game regular season, I believe they would have would have had a winning record, but they were never, ever, ever a you know a Pac-12 favorite playoff contender whatever and uh, I've been proven 100% correct on that UCLA going into a game against Washington this weekend which isn't good they are an underdog in that game they are four and two overall to their credit taking care of the teams that they're supposed to Hawaii Stanford Arizona also lost to Arizona State lost to Fresno and of course they have that big win over LSU so I liked UCLA I think Chip Kelly's the right guy for the job. Uh, any talk of him being you know, the wrong guy I thought was always overblown. He is turning this thing around. Maybe in another two, three, four years they can be a college football playoff type team, especially if we get to 12 teams. But the idea that they were the saving grace of the Pac-12 this year, I never bought it, and I was proven right on this. Where Aaron was wrong. I'm really mad at myself on this one. Let me let the record show I'm really mad at myself on this one. Because coming out of last week, not this past weekend, two, three days ago, but two weekends ago, when Alabama beat Ole Miss and Arkansas beat Georgia, or Georgia beat Arkansas, the, the clear narrative was Alabama, Georgia, everybody else in college football, and I bought into that narrative. And I'm so mad at myself because even during that Ole Miss game, I said, I don't know how good Alabama is. This is like the Georgia destroying Arkansas. That was a statement game for Georgia. But I said to myself, did we learn anything about Alabama this week? Or did Lane Kiffin just go for a million fourth downs, convert none of them, and now all of a sudden Alabama has this big win that looks impressive when they didn't really do anything? Well, what happens? Fast forward this week, Kyle Field, Texas A&M, 
credit Texas A&M, took care of business. Clearly, Alabama, even though they can make the playoff, is not elite. I talked about Alabama last episode. We don't need to get into it. This is not a vintage Alabama team. I think they're actually going to struggle this week with Mississippi State. I think they could actually lose that game. But even if they don't, I don't think they could lose. I think it could be close, though. Even if they win, though, there are still landmines and hurdles ahead of them on the schedule. I do not think they're as good as Georgia. I think they're they're in that second tier with an Ohio State, Oklahoma, if they figure things out with Caleb Williams. Or there's, there's other teams that are competitive with Alabama. They've lost too much. Bryce Young isn't ready to be the guy yet. I don't think they are an elite team, and shame on me for trying to talk you guys into it and trying to talk myself into it last week. I should be ashamed of myself. I'll put myself in timeout for 10 minutes. All right, where Aaron was right. Let's switch to the NFL really quick. Love to get in a few smaller topics that I don't get to talk through to throughout the week. Where Aaron was right, how about our boy Zach Wilson? And Zach Wilson, Jets quarterback, uh, is currently right now, the Jets are 1-4, in four. Uh, Zach Wilson is completing 57% of his passes with four touchdowns and nine interceptions. I don't root against anybody. I don't root against Zach Wilson. I don't root against the Jets. John Frisella, one of our writers, NFL writers at AaronTorresOnline.com is a Jets fan. I want the Jets to be good because I like John. And I want Zach Wilson to be good because it's a fun story. But what did I say on this podcast in the lead up to the draft? There was so much debate. Mac Jones, how can you take Mac Jones at number three? Oh my God, how could you? And I said, why are we sold that Zach Wilson at number two is the right pick? Now, Trevor Lawrence, I never doubted. I still don't doubt. Jacksonville's a mess. We need more time to evaluate that guy. But I said, Zach, we're, we're sold on Zach Wilson. He's not that big. There's no like physical gift that makes you just blows you off the page with Trevor, the way, the, you know, kind of a Trevor Lawrence, Joe Burrow, whatever. And also, Played at BYU, only had one good season. It wasn't like he had a five-year career where he was the best quarterback in the in the, the group of five at that point. Obviously, they're not group of five, but not the power five. Had one good year, and BYU didn't play a single power five team last year. And so all I said was, why are we sold on Zach Wilson that he's the definitive number two pick in the draft? I've said it all along. If I had the number two pick, I would have taken Justin Fields. Wasn't sold on Trey Lance either, but at least people weren't trying to stuff Trey Lance down my throat at number three. There was a real debate between Justin Fields, Trey Lance, and Mac Jones, but I never understood the Zach Wilson hype, never understood why he was the definitive second pick in the draft, and we never even considered anybody else. Can't lie. Nailed that one. Warren was wrong. All right, this one I got to take a big L on. So obviously, I don't talk a ton of NFL on this show, but preseason, you know, in the NFL, uh, I did talk a lot on Fox Sports Radio. And one thing that I kept saying, I said it's put up or shut up time for Matthew Stafford. For years, he's had this excuse of it's the Lions. The Lions stink. The organization stinks. It's not my fault. Don't blame me. And I said... Yeah, but if you look at the stats against teams with winning records, playoff team, you never elevated your team. If you're that good, at some point you're going to do it. And I said, I don't think he's the guy, and I think he has been using the Lions as a crutch, and I think in reality, he will we will find out quickly that he is part of the he was part of the problem the last few years in Detroit. Well, not sure how much you followed the NFL this season, but uh first off, there are only right now as I record here two winless teams in the NFL. One of them is the Jacksonville Jaguars. The other one's the Detroit Lions. Uh, And then two, and by the way, at least the Lions are competitive. They play hard for Dan Campbell. But two, Matthew Stafford is balling out. 
He has been awesome with Sean McVay. I think they are just reaching the, you know, scratching the surface, but completing 68% of his passes, 12 touchdowns, three interceptions. The Rams are four and one. And I'll be honest, I think they might be the best team in the NFC. I know the Arizona Cardinals are in first place in that division right now, but the the, the Rams with the defense that they have, shut down corner Jalen Ramsey, Aaron Donald in the middle. You talk about a team that is built to win a Super Bowl and also probably worth mentioning, Matthew Stafford has been awesome. 12 touchdowns, three interceptions. All right. I think that's it for this episode of the Aerator Sports Podcast. I want to thank you guys for your support. Um, I know I say it all the time. But I am, you know, the numbers this month, October, September as well, but October, the numbers are mind-boggling. So I want to thank you all for your continued support of the Aaron Torres podcast. If you like the show, always feel free to share with friends and family. Uh, you know, we have real, honest, raw conversations here, but I think it's fun. And I think I put out, I hope I put out an entertaining product. The numbers of downloads reflect that I do. So thank you guys for your support because I can't do all this without you. Before we get out of here, I want to remind you, if you're not subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, please make sure to do so. iTunes, Podcast Addict App, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, Apple Music, Amazon Music, Google Music, whatever. Uh, make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Uh, AaronTorresOnline.com for my writing. My college football picks will go up Wednesday. Also, a lot of other good writers there. And if you follow a certain team, we've started now four social media accounts for Aaron Torres Media. Uh, Torres on UK if you're a Kentucky fan. Torres on the Hogs if you're an Arkansas fan. Torres on uh, Bama if you're a Bama fan. Torres on the Vols if you're a Tennessee fan. Indiana is coming, hopefully a few more down the road. If you think you'd be a good fit for one of these accounts, let me know. We can get you started. But with that said, that is all for today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Shout out to Torrey Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. And shout out to whatever is going on with those emails because that is a crazy story that is only going to get crazier. John Gruden taking the fall. I think he's taking the fall for somebody else. Also, watch what you email people, all right? We'll talk soon, party people. Take care. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.